fuel, give me fire, give me that which I desire. Hey everybody and welcome to part four of the Metallicast and Summer for All series. I am your host and fellow Metallica fan. My name is Brandon and Summer for All is flying by. We are already almost halfway through the Injustice for All album. For those of you who do not know, this is a little mini-series I'm doing during the summer months here. It is a weekly track-by-track breakdown of the Justice album leading to its 30th anniversary next month in August. And... We are going in chronological order, so this being part four, that means this is week four, which means we're looking at track four, which is the most well-known song on the Justice album, and one of the most well-known songs in the entire Metallica catalog. I'm, of course, I'm talking about the song one. So there's a lot, a lot to talk about from the song itself, to the music video, to the Grammy nomination. We're going to dive into all of it. And, well, I should say I'm going to dive into all of it. Last week, I was honored to have our first guest host of the Summer for All series, Mr. Kevin Van Dam. This week, I'm back to flying solo. I do have a couple more guest hosts lined up for future episodes. But for this one, you're just stuck with me. So without further ado, let's jump into things. Here is part four of In Summer for All, one. members of the Metallicast Militia, that you all love the song one, at least just as much as Beavis and Butthead. But having that song featured on a show like that, that has such an impact on popular culture, shows you how big of a song this was. In fact, 
before the Black Album came out in 1991, this was easily the biggest song Metallica had ever released. They had released several singles before, including two from the Justice for All album. The first single released from Justice was Harvester of Sorrow, which we'll get to later in the In Summer for All series. The second single was Eye of the Beholder, which I covered last week with Mr. Kevin Van Dam. And the third and final single was One. Now, what made this song break out? Because Harvester of Sorrow never became a radio hit. Eye of the Beholder barely gets recognized by the band themselves these days, as we discussed last week. But One was a breakout hit, and it has to be because... Metallica finally made a music video. The cerebrum has suffered massive and irreparable damage. I don't know what has happened to him. Had I not been sure of this, I would not have permitted him to live. Where? Father? Father? I need help. What is democracy? What is democracy? It's got something to do with young men killing each other. When it comes my turn, will you want me to go? For democracy, any man would give his only begotten son. I'm referencing the Metallica in their own words book by Mark Putterford. This is a quote from Lars Ulrich. And we'll be hearing a lot from Lars this episode because, dude, that man can talk. But this is a quote from September 1988. Lars says, We came real close to doing a promo video for Welcome Home Sanitarium and For Whom the Bell Tolls. But at the end of the day, we just sort of asked ourselves why. What's the point? But if we ever do get around to doing one, it'll have to be completely different from your typical bullshit video that you can see on MTV's Headbangers Ball, because we don't want to be associated with all the other shit that's on there. Metallica said they would never release a music video, and as Lars says in that quote, why? What would the point be? They're already selling a lot of albums, already breaking into arenas on their own, without radio, without MTV. And the fact that they did release a video was one of the many times in their career where Metallica heard the term sellout because there were members of their hardcore fan base that said, you were never going to do this. Why are you doing this to us? Because they felt, I guess, like victims in the whole thing. You know, Metallica heard it when they released the ballad Fate to Black on Ride the Lightning. They would hear it a couple years down the road when they released the Black album. They would hear it again during the Load Reload era. You know, they've been hearing this word over and over again because... They do what they want, when they want to do it, and they really do not play by the quote-unquote heavy metal rules that have been put in place over years and years and years. So, they heard this word sellout. But, I think an important part of the quote that I read was when Lars addresses the fact that if we were ever to do this, we're going to do this on our our own terms and do it our own way because it has to be different than the other bullshit that is out there. Here is a clip from Lars Ulrich from a 
Much Music special. Uh, Much Music, for those of you who may not know, is basically the MTV equivalent in Canada. And this was a special they did called Justice on Wheels, where they basically followed Metallica around um, for the Damage Justice tour. There are sit-down interviews with both Kirk Hammett and Lars. Here is a clip where they discuss the video for one. The theme of the song One is particularly bleak. How did that one come about? Uh, it's funny the word bleak comes up a lot. <laughs> a dark <laughs> vision, shall we call it, you know? Um, basically, it, it just goes back a few years ago to, uh, actually way back to when we were doing stuff for the Puppets album. We were just talking about what it would be like to be in a situation which the guy in the song is obviously in where he basically can't see hear or speak and doesn't have any limbs or anything just basically shut off from everything that goes on around him and then we found out that there was a book written about a guy in a similar situation just set up against the background of world war one which was obviously this book called johnny got his gun and um that's basically when we took the idea and set it against that background but just i think some of those ideas come from um i think a lot of them comes from sort of fear of, of, of being trapped in certain situations that you really have no control over. Oh, please God, wake me. It's like a piece of meat that keeps on living. In making the video for the, for the song, how did you integrate the film footage into the performance? We became aware sometime back in September of last year that there was actually a movie done about the book and then it was uh, actually derailed, uh, directed by old uh, Dalton Trumbo himself. And... Um, <clears throat> who wrote the book, obviously, and we uh, got a copy of the movie, which wasn't actually that easy to track down, and and looked through it and so forth, and I think somewhere along the lines of, of watching the movie and so forth, somewhere a few ideas were just born, born that maybe here was actually sort of the foundation of something that could possibly turn into some sort of very weird and very different, you know, promotional video than what other bands had done. And we got the rights to the movie, and we... Um, basically just started talking about, you know, okay, we'll show the band, you know, playing very, very subtly and, you know, just the way we would do when we rehearse and you know, play to each other, not anything big and, and enormous with big lights and anything like that, just very subtle and very sort of just easy, sort of straightforward stuff. And um, just basically to try and, and, and tell the story of, of what goes on in this book and this movie without also, which was very difficult to, um, without just making the song sort of like a musical background for the story. So it was, and trying to balance it out was kind of difficult. We knew somewhere along the lines there that we had an idea that was, you know, definitely very original and, and also quite different from what other people had been doing. And we threw ourselves out into it, knowing all the time the agreement we had with Electra Records, which was that if this did not work, so yeah, straight in the garbage can at their expense. <laughs> and uh, nice agreement. Yeah, it was a good agreement. It isn't like, uh, isn't like a lot of these commercial videos where it's just uh, image after image after image after image, and you, you, you know you can just like stare at it, you know, at a day. This one demands a lot of attention when you look at it, and uh, it's like I said, it's pretty different. And so I'm really proud of it. 
there are a couple points there that I want to go back to. But to follow up on that, this is another quote from Lars Ulrich, again, taken from the Metallica in their own words book. This one is from March 1989 in reference to the one music video. We really want to do a video in that fashion. Unique, different, in us. It's so us. We really did feel we did it on our own term. And another quote from Lars, We've been avoiding doing a video for years. We have come close once or twice in the past, the nearest being for the song For Whom the Bell Tolls, which we backed out of making at the last minute. But somehow one always seemed to lend itself to a visual interpretation. And we also felt it was about time Metallica took on the challenge of making a video. We wanted our own appearance to be as low-key and subdued as possible. Yet we also felt that the shots of us live should be moody and reflect the intensity of the film. Thus we chose Bill, Pope, director, because of his previous work with the likes of Peter Gabriel, YouTube, and Sting. He spent a lot of time getting the lighting correct, giving it a certain eeriness through the use of a blue tinge. Bill also used some interesting camera angles, shooting all of us in ways that concentrated on various limbs, thereby emphasizing the fact that the kid in the song has no limbs. We tried to strike the right balance between telling the story and allowing the song to be more than just background music. I think we achieved that. It's weird. I've been in a band now for some eight years, and this was the first time I've ever mimed to one of my own songs. But overall, I enjoyed the experience. In another quote from December 1989, Lars, yet again, as I said, we'll be hearing a lot from him this episode. One of the main things that the one video did for us was show us how video isn't actually the evil Satan we might have thought it to be. As of now, there isn't a follow-up planned, but I do know that something will happen in the future. Between the sick minds of James, the management, and us, I'm sure we'll be able to come up with something again. And obviously they would, as every single after this, would be accompanied by a music video. So if we take all this information, it is clear that while some might have been calling them sellouts, Metallica did this on their own term, in their own way. To them, this was a natural progression. It was a challenge. It was a little bit of an experiment. So much so where they told Electra Records, you can front the bill, which the record company usually does for music videos. But if this does not work out in our vision, we are dumping it. It will be thrown away. And fortunately for us, the music video turned out in their vision. And I think, personally, it is the best music video ever made. To this day, when I watch it, I'm just so depressed. It is such an eerie music video. Very somber tone, obviously, because of the subject matter. And the movie clips that they utilize just really top it off. You heard in that much music interview, Lars talk about Johnny Got His Gun. And I do not want to brush over this fact because this was the inspiration for this entire song. And I have watched the movie multiple times. I have even read the book multiple times. I think both are fascinating. And if you ever have the chance to see the movie, do so. I think you might be able to find it on YouTube. Um, I think it has been re-released on DVD in recent years. I'm not sure about Blu-ray. I'm not sure about digital streaming. Uh, If you were to go to iTunes or whatever, I'm not sure if it's on there. I know growing up, it was very hard to find. Um, I actually got it as a birthday present from my parents when I was in high school because they knew I was... They knew my love for Metallica. They knew uh, my interest in this book um, because I had read it and had talked about it with them uh, because I thought it was so powerful. 
and they tracked down a VHS copy of the movie, ordered it online way back in the beginning days of online shopping. I watched it by myself. I watched it with my family. We were all deeply moved by it because it is just such a powerful movie. It's one of those movies that just stops and you're just like, what the fuck did I just watch? Like you, it is an exhausting emotional experience. And I had the same reaction with the book as well. Here is the original trailer from the movie Johnny Got His Gun. It's been going on with us for a long time. Somebody once said that the history of a country is the history of its wars. Another man said that war is stupid, wasteful, vicious, and self-defeating. And the third man said, let's put an end to war. In 1914 began the most destructive war the world has ever known. A war to end all wars. Four years later, with a continent devastated and millions dead, it was over. The great struggle had ended. Dalton Trumbo's Johnny Got His Gun is not the story of the 80 million who have died, but of one man who survived. The story of a man who fought the war to end all wars. The war which would make the world safe for democracy. See it. It may change your life. Johnny Got His Gun, much like the song One, is a beautiful, happy love song uh, about a World War I veteran who loses all of his limbs and cannot communicate with the outside world other than through Morse code, which he can tap with the back of his head. And he hopes and prays as he has flashbacks to his childhood, his adulthood, the war itself, that somebody, anybody, will figure out what he's trying to say or that he's even trying to communicate in the first place because he wants to die. He does not want to go on living in this current state. I'm going to read an excerpt from the book. Dalton Trumbo wrote this. He was also the director of the film. And this is near the beginning of the book when the main character is trying to come to terms with his current condition. And the reason for me reading this is to not only give you insight into how dark this book is, as if you could not tell from the subject matter. But I feel like this particular section of the book, especially, you can see some of the lyrical inspirations that James Hatfield took from it. Everyone here loves story time, our favorite time of the day. When we gather Then things quieted down all of a sudden. Everything went still inside his head. The lights before his eyes snapped out as quickly as if somebody had shut them off with a switch. The pain went away too. 
The only feeling he had was the strong throb of blood in his brain swelling and contracting his head. But it was peaceful. It was painless. It was such a relief that he came out of his drowning. He could think. He thought, well, kid, you're deaf as a post, but there isn't the pain. You've got no arms, but you don't hurt. You'll never burn your hand or cut your finger or smash a nail, you lucky stiff. You're alive and you don't hurt, and that's much better than being alive and hurting. There are lots of things a deaf guy without arms can do, but he doesn't hurt so much. He goes crazy from pain. He can get hooks or something for arms, and he can learn to read lips, and while that doesn't exactly put him on top of the world, still he's not drowned in the bottom of a river with pain tearing his brain to pieces. He's still got air, and he's not struggling. He's got willow trees, and he can think, and he's not in pain. He couldn't understand why the nurses or whoever had charge of him wouldn't lay him out level. The lower half of him was light as a feather while his head and chest were dead weights. That was why he had thought he was drowning. His head was too low. If he could move whatever was under his legs and bring his body to an even level, he'd feel better. He wouldn't have that drowning dream anymore. He started to kick out with his feet to move what was under his legs. He only started because he didn't have any legs to kick with. Somewhere just below his hip joints, they'd cut both of his legs off. No legs. No more running, walking, crawling if you have no legs. No more working. No legs, you see. Never again to wiggle your toes. What a hell of a thing. What a wonderful, beautiful thing to wiggle your toes. No, no. If he could only think of real things, he would destroy this dream of having no legs. Steamships, loaves of bread, girls, Kareem, machine guns, books, chewing gum, pieces of wood, Kareem, but thinking of real things didn't help because it wasn't a dream. It was the truth. That was why his head had seemed lower than his legs, because he had no legs. Naturally, they seemed light. Air is light too. Even a toenail is heavy compared to air. He had no arms and no legs. He threw back his head and started to yell from fright, but he only started because he had no mouth to yell with. He was so surprised at not yelling when he tried that he began to work his jaws like a man who has found something interesting and wants to test it. He was so sure the idea of no mouth was a dream that he could investigate it calmly. He tried to work his jaws and he had no jaws. He tried to run his tongue around the inside of his teeth and over the roof of his mouth as if he were chasing a raspberry seed, but he didn't have any tongue and he hadn't any teeth. There was no roof to his mouth and there was no mouth. He tried to swallow, but he couldn't because he had no palate and there weren't any muscles left to swallow with. He began to smother and pant. It was as if someone had pushed a mattress over his face and was holding it there. He was breathing hard and fast now, but he wasn't really breathing because there wasn't any air passing through his nose. He didn't have a nose. He could feel his chest rise and fall and quiver, but not a breath of air was passing through the place where his nose used to be. He got a wild, panicky eagerness to die, to kill himself. He tried to calm his breathing, to stop breathing entirely so he would suffocate. He could feel the muscles at the bottom of his throat close tight against the air, but the breathing in his chest kept right on. There wasn't any air in his throat to be stopped. His lungs were sucking it in somewhere below his throat. He knew now that he was surely dying, but he was curious. He didn't want to die until he had found out everything. If a man has no nose and no mouth and no palate and no tongue, why stands to reason he might be shy a few other parts as well. But that was nonsense because a man in that shape would be dead. You couldn't lose that much of yourself and still keep on living. Yet if you knew you had lost them and were thinking about it, why then? You must be alive because dead men don't think. Dead men aren't curious and he was sick with curiosity so you must not be dead yet. He began to reach out with the nerves of his face, began to strain to feel the nothingness that was there. Where his mouth and nose had been, there must now be nothing but a hole covered with bandages. He was trying to find out how far up that hole went. He was trying to feel the edges of the hole. He was grasping with the nerves and pores of his face to follow the borders of that hole and see how far up they extended. It was like staring into complete darkness with your eyes popping out of your head. It was a process of feeling with the skin of exploring with something that couldn't move where his mind told him to. 
The nerves and muscles of his face were crawling like snakes toward his forehead. The hole began at the base of his throat just below where his jaw should be and went upward in a widening circle. He could feel his skin creeping around the rim of the circle. The hole was getting bigger and bigger. It widened out almost to the base of his ears, if he had any, and then narrowed again. It ended somewhere above the top of what used to be his nose. The hole went too high to have any eyes in it. He was blind. It was funny how calm he was. He was quiet, just like a storekeeper taking spring inventory and saying to himself, I see, I have no eyes. Better put that down in the order book. He had no legs and no arms and no eyes and no ears and no nose and no mouth and no tongue. What a hell of a dream. It must be a dream. Of course, sweet God, it's a dream. He'd have to wake up or he'd go nuts. Nobody could live like that. A person in that condition would be dead, and he wasn't dead, so he wasn't in that condition. Just dreaming. But it wasn't a dream. He could want it to be a dream forever, and that wouldn't change things, because he was alive, alive. He was nothing but a piece of meat like the chunks of cartilage old Prof Vogel used to have in biology. Chunks of cartilage that didn't have anything except life, so they grew on chemicals. But he was one up on the cartilage. He had a mind, and it was thinking. That's more than Prof Vogel could ever say of his cartilages. He was thinking, and he was just a thing. Oh no, 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 no. He couldn't live like this because he would go crazy. But he couldn't die because he couldn't kill himself. If he could only breathe, he could die. That was funny, but it was true. He could hold his breath and kill himself. That was the only way left, except that he wasn't breathing. His lungs were pumping air, but he couldn't stop them from doing it. He couldn't live and he couldn't die. No, 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 that can't be right. No, no, mother. Mother, where are you? Hurry, mother. Hurry, hurry, hurry and wake me up. I'm having a nightmare, mother. Where are you? Hurry, mother. I'm down here. Here, mother. Here in the darkness. Pick me up. Rockabye, baby. Now I lay me down to sleep. Oh, mother, hurry, because I can't wake up. Over here, mother. When the wind blows, the cradle will rock. Hold me up high, high. Mother, you've gone away and forgotten me. Here I am. I can't wake up another. Wake me up. I can't move. Hold me. I'm scared. Oh, mother, mother, sing to me and rub me and bathe me and comb my hair and wash out my ears and play with my toes and clap my hands together and blow my nose and kiss my eyes and mouth like I've seen you do with Elizabeth, like you must have done with me. Then I'll wake up and I'll be with you. And I'll never leave or be afraid or dream again. Oh no, I can't. I can't stand it. Scream, move, shake, something. Make a noise, any noise. I can't stand it. Oh no, no, no. Please, I can't. Please, no. Somebody come. Help me. I can't lie here forever like this until maybe years from now I die. I can't. Nobody can. It isn't possible. I can't breathe, but I'm breathing. I'm so scared. I can't think, but I'm thinking. Oh, please, please, no. No, no. It isn't me. Help me. It can't be me. Not me. No, no, no. Oh, please. Oh, oh, please. No, no, no. Please, no, please. Not me. Sunlight shine. It's a special place. It's a happy face. of a beaver story time. And that was the first ever Metallica story time. Apparently, I am Papa Beaver, according to that song anyways. I had to make that little bit lighter somehow some way and I know that was a lengthy excerpt but if you listened to it and hopefully you did I feel like you can really hear some key words or even phrases that James Hetfield borrowed for his lyrics in this song some of the lyrics that stand out to me in relation to the excerpt I just read I can't remember anything can't tell if this is true or dream Deep down inside, I feel to scream. This terrible silence stops me. Hold my breath as I wish for death. Oh, please, God, wake me. Back in the womb, it's much too real. In pumps life that I must feel. Fed through the tube that sticks in me, just like a wartime novelty. Now the world is gone, I'm just one. Oh, God, help me. Hold my breath as I wish for death. Oh, please, God, help me. Even the whole, what I would call the bridge section... After the second chorus, before the song really takes off and with the extended solo and harmony section, 
darkness imprisoning me, all that I see, absolute horror. I cannot live, I cannot die, trust myself, body my holding cell. Landmine has taken my sight, taken my speech, taken my hearing, taken my arms, taken my legs, taken my soul, living with life in hell. Even the pace that the song is sung in that section reminds me of some of the pacing in the book where it just becomes sort of one run-on sentence because it's capturing the f- how frantic and panicked his thoughts are as he's discovering all these things about himself. And on a personal note, when I was a junior in high school, I had a combined ELA and social studies class. So for a book report, I read Johnny Got His Gum. And not only did I have to do a book report, but I had to present about it. So it tied in perfectly with what we were talking about in class, which was McCarthyism, because Dalton Trumbo was one of the accused and that is something we're going to talk more about when we get to the shortest straw in the In Summer for All series because of that song's subject matter. But I definitely played the music video for one. We had to provide, in addition to our oral presentation and the formal written report, some sort of visual or audio component to our presentation. So I played the video and the class was sort of stunned um, at the dreariness of it. Some of them definitely thought I was probably a little fucked up. But, of course, there were also kids in there who knew the song, knew Metallica, were metalheads, or appreciated it even if they were not metalheads. But, yeah, that was just one of many examples of how I tried to do every high school project about Metallica. And I feel like we've been talking a lot about the background of the song. And we've touched upon the lyrics now. So I think this is a good time to transition and talk about, one, the music. After 17 seconds of war sound effects, one begins with a single, clean guitar. We have touched upon the production of Injustice for All, the absence of the bass in the mix and whatnot, but I feel like the production adds a bleakness to these songs. And I feel like one might be the best example of this because it's such a bleak song with its subject matter. And having that single guitar just sort of echo out and ring, it just feels in my opinion, so isolated and alone, which really ties in again with the subject matter. The guitar at the beginning alternates between a B minor chord and a G major seven chord. A chord is when you play more than one note at the same time. So whether I am playing a guitar, a piano, or I'm singing with a group, I can create a harmony by playing more than one note or singing more than one note at a time and it will create a chord which is a group of typically three or more notes that sound together this is a quote from james heffield from a 1991 issue of guitar world where he is talking about the introduction to one and he is talking specifically about the chord change from b to g now 
I'm going to read the quote in a moment, and he's going to call it a modulation, which is actually incorrect. A modulation is when you switch keys. He's not switching keys from going B to G. He's just switching chords, but it remains in the same key. You would know, even if you're not an experienced musician, what a modulation sounds like when you heard it. But anyways, here's the quote. I had been fiddling around with that B to G modulation for a long time. The idea for the opening came from a Venom song called Buried Alive. Here is a clip from Buried Alive by Venom off their classic black metal album and see if you can hear the similarity between the one intro and the Buried Alive intro. We are brought forth unto this world with nothing, and with nothing we depart. So I commend this body to the ground with loving remembrance. Earth to earth, ashes to ashes. After the introduction, the song slowly builds, and it follows a very similar structure to the ballads that came before, those being, of course, Fade to Black and Welcome Home Sanitarium, where you have the clean guitar and the softer verses, and then the heavier, distorted chorus, and then that builds into a bridge section, and then just explodes into a more straightforward thrash metal section that allows for an extended guitar solo and harmonies meter wise or time signature as we've discussed in previous episodes you are typically in 4-4 but you have little bits of 2-4 here little bits of 3-4 here the section that i would consider i guess the chorus even though it might not be really structured in a traditional chorus way is when hetfield sings now the world is gone i'm just one Oh, God, help me. Hold to my breath as I wish for death. Oh, please, God, help me. And that section is actually in 6-4, which is a little bit unusual. We did see that time in Blackened, which, again, probably has the most time signatures packed into one song than any other song Metallica has written or recorded. So definitely some time changes here or there. But I really do not want to brush over the infamous Machine Gun riff.
this is probably the most classic famous part of one including to casual fans this is the headbang part this is the one that made beef's butthead declare that metallica rules now interestingly enough taken from the same 1991 guitar world issue james hetfield said the kick drum machine gun part near the end wasn't written with the war lyrics in mind it just came out that way so apparently it was not intentional for them to have that effect but obviously that is what it has become known as and it just works so perfectly that it's hard to believe that that was not the original intention i guess perhaps maybe it was a happy accident or the lyrics came after the fact um, and they decided that wow that really works well together especially in context of the song now i'm going to end the musical analysis with this quote again from guess who Lars Ulrich. He says about one, musically, it's a bit mellower than some of the other shit. It's a bit more of a build-up sort of thing. It starts out for a couple of minutes with some really mellow, clean acoustic guitars with ballad type singing over it, before building to this huge middle section, which is more of an epic sort of thing, and then it just sort of speeds up and ends like a runaway freight train. I think a runaway freight train is the best way to, to describe this middle and ending section of the song. But before we completely wrap up the musical analysis of one, I do want to ask you, the Metallicast Militia, this question, which you can answer on social media. I am at MetallicastPod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But my question for you is an opinion question, so obviously no right or wrong. Is this the best guitar harmony Metallica has ever written and recorded? song one and its accompanying video was such a hit for the band that they actually released a vhs back in the day called two of one which featured the original full-length video and song as well as a shorter edited version called the jammin version the reason for this was metallica thought hey if there are any radio stations out there willing to play the song maybe they'll be more likely to play it if we shorten it by a few minutes because, you know, eight minutes is a very long radio song. But the VHS also features a little introduction by, you guessed it, Mr. Ulrich. And he gives his opinion on the shorter version. And we can leave that in, fine. This is casual. There is the, uh, what we call the original main version, which is the full song, obviously, without edits or anything, the way it was written and recorded, um, which we obviously think is the main great version and the one that obviously brings the song across the best way and also obviously the story and everything that goes on with the footage and the dialogue. Um, then we did a version of it which we um, we made an edit of the song, brought the, the song, cut about two minutes out of the song and um, 
and 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 made a slightly shorter version of the song for if there were certain radio stations that want to play the shorter version or whatever. And we made a version of the video with that tune. Be, to be totally honest with you, neither me nor any of the other guys in the band really think much of that short version, mainly because I don't think that the storyline really comes across as well in the five and a half minute short version as it does in the long proper version. But um, what we came up with an idea then a couple of weeks ago was to, um, you know, we, we just thought that it's great, you know, the idea with bringing the whole movie in and so forth, but also it just might get kind of old after a while and, and so forth. And we just wanted to see what else we could do with it. So um, Cliff Bernstein came up with the idea of, of what would it be like to have a version of us actually just playing the song and, and really sort of leaving the story and all that stuff just to it's a, in the original long version. And um, we talked to Michael Solomon to ask him if he could um, edit a version together of us just playing the song, just kind of jamming on it. We call it just jamming version. Probably <laughs> 99% of, of the kids out there know that this was done our way. And the reason that we had waited so long to do it was that we just didn't feel yet that you know it was right. And this time around, it just felt like it was right and it was the right idea. So best of my knowledge, and I could be wrong, but two of one is no longer available. I'm sure you could go online and find an old VHS. You can find both versions on YouTube. Both versions, the original and the jamming version, were featured on the DVD Metallica, the videos, 1989 to 2004. I would not be doing my job as the host of Metallicast, the Metallica podcast, if I did not talk about the Grammy nomination and loss of Metallica during this time period. With three powerful albums of her own. She is joined tonight by one of the legends of rock. Extreme was the label that was first attached to him, but always beneath the surface of shock was a powerful musician. Here are Lita Ford and the man who gave Latoya the snake, Alice Cooper. The best hard rock metal performances are. And justice for all, Metallica. Blow up your video, ACDC. Yeah. <laughs> uh, cold metal, Iggy Pop. Crest of a Knave, Jethro Tull. Nothing shocking, James Addiction. And the Grammy goes to, I have the envelope here, somewhere. Oh no, it's not this, here. Okay. Alice, I told you to leave your pets at home. I'm sorry. God. They wouldn't let me bring the real one. Right. And the winner is Crest of a Knave, Jethro Tull. In what was probably the biggest upset in the history of the Grammys, the Recording Academy gave the first ever Metal Hard Rock Award to Jethro Tull. Everybody thought Metallica was going to win it. Metallica had just performed one on stage live on television. And yet, 
Jethro Tull walks away with the award. I found this article from Rolling Stone in 2014. They were interviewing Lars Ulrich about the Through the Never video release. And the band had recently performed one again at the Grammys, this time with classical pianist Lang Lang. So the subject of that Grammy loss came up, and this is, again, from Lars Ulrich. He says, Getting the chance to put a band like Metallica on a national TV show like the Grammys and getting to occupy five and a half minutes of airtime was a huge, huge, huge thing in 1989. It was a kind of validation of tens of thousands of disenfranchised and left-of-center music fans' existence, in a way. I'm not trying to pat ourselves on the back here, but it was sort of the first time the Grammys has said, yes, there is stuff that's edgier. There is stuff that's darker than the stuff that's being played on the radio and MTV. That was the real victory that day. And here we are hearing Metallica's gonna win a Grammy. Everybody was kind of buying into this idea, and obviously at one point, you start hearing enough, you start buying into it yourself. When Jethro Tull was announced after we had performed, it sort of reiterated what everybody had thought all along. It was the thought that the Grammys were out of whack with what was current, that it was still sort of a few years behind the curve in terms of what was really going on in the music world, rather than what was going on within the Recording Academy. This is how fucked up it was. The record company had already made 10,001 sheets to put in record stores that said Justice was a Grammy Award winner. So we said, why don't we just put a sticker on them that says Grammy Award Loser? Listen, we were psyched that we were involved, we were psyched that we were invited, we were psyched that we got to perform, and then a year or two later, they invited us back and we got our award. We've won a bunch of them since, I can't remember the count, so it worked out okay. I'm happy that we were the first guys to knock on the fucking door. I don't think I've ever met Jethro Tull frontman Ian Anderson. I don't think I've ever even been in the same space as Ian Anderson. The other day I was listening to one of their songs, not Aqualung, but one of them was on the radio the other day. I was telling my 15-year-old son, those are the guys that won the Grammy the first year. I was trying to explain to him who Jethro Tull was about this flute-playing guy that has sort of Renaissance clothes. I think it was hard to follow what I was saying since he was listening to Arctic Monkeys with the other ear, but I gave it my best shot. But it all worked out okay. Those were crazy days. In the same Justice on Wheels Much Music special that I mentioned at the start, James Heffield is interviewed walking out of the Grammy Awards in 1989. Hear what Heffield had to say, and then you will hear what Kirk Hammett had to say during his sit-down interview concerning the Grammys. Let's hear it for Thrush Metal. Terry Mulligan, Much Music Canada. Canadian video channel. Are you you bummed? (laughs) Hey, we got to play. That's a great thing for us. One step forward, three back. Uh, all forward. Uh, all right. And and from here on in, I suppose that the same way I was talking to Kumo D about the rap selections. There's another five to ten bands that you could have nominated on the master list. There's a lot of music being made out there. It was kind of a weird uh, list yeah. of uh, metal uh, yeah. contenders. What, what it's you, really strange. But what do you figure is the, is the criteria? If you're going to you know, get it down to what is the criteria for the, for the selection? Where, uh, uh, what? You mean in the heavy metal category? Yeah. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if Jethro Tull belonged in there. They don't belong. That's what I'm saying. Maybe 10 years ago or something. Uh, I, I, I thought ACDC was going to win personally. I was so surprised to see Metallica on the Grammys. Was that a victory just being there? It was good in that th- this was the first time that uh, this this category was added to, to the Academy. 
and uh, it was, you know, it was good for us to play. That was the most important thing, is actually playing. It wasn't as much winning as it was actually playing and establishing ourselves as a, a, a genre that, you know, that, that is a major force, you know, has, actually has something to say. And, uh, I mean, it, it felt really good, and I felt really honored to, to be to be in the band that was picked, you know, to represent this genre. It was my goal to make this the definitive look at one since it is one of the most classic Metallica songs. Perhaps I succeeded, perhaps I failed in that. But either way, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I do want to end by saying that one of my goals when I started Metallicast was to make this as interactive as possible because I'm not the only voice that is out there and I'm not the only voice that I want to be heard which is why I'm trying to bring in more guest hosts here or there and is also why I'm so active on social media again I'm at Metallicast Pod on Facebook Twitter and Instagram but I'm experimenting with different ways to get people more involved so if you ever want an email read on air you can email Metallicast at fansnotexperts.com or you can now call into the show, leave a message, and your message might possibly be played on the air. I started a Google number, which I'm going to call the Metallicast Hotline. And the number is, if you want to call for a future episode, 203-548-0609. You can give the show a shout out. You can ask a question. You can state an opinion on uh, Metallica or if you want to talk about the In Summer For All series, you know, we got all the songs after one coming up. Shortest Straw, Half Surf Sorrow, Frightens of Sanity, so on and so forth. So if you want to leave an opinion on one of those songs or tell a Metallica story, whatever, as long as it is Metallica related or Metallicast related, leave the message and it could be played on air. Feel free to leave your first name if you want so I can give you a shout out. If you want to plug anything of your own too during the message, I'm cool with that. If you have a Twitter handle you want to plug or if you have a YouTube channel you want to plug, I'm completely cool with that. Again, the number is 203-548-0609. We'll see what happens with it. But I do have one message that has been left. So hopefully I get more. But this message comes from a Jimmy, a Jamie in Vail, Colorado. This is uh, your number one fan. My name's James, but you can call me Jimmy. Anyway, uh, you asked people to call, and I said, should I call? Yeah, yeah. So I uh, just keep up the good work. Your podcast is awesome, but the website is on is even better. I just made up a word. Yeah, yeah. Ooh, I gotta go. Well, there you go, everybody. Uh, Jimmy, Jamie, I think you said Jimmy. Um, Your voice sounds very familiar. I cannot quite place where I've heard your voice before, but you sound very familiar. Thank you for calling into the show. Thank you for the shout-out. Yeah, I guess the website we're on is okay, too. Fansonexperts.com, at Fansonexperts on Twitter. Again, third and final time i'll say for this episode i am at metallicast on social media facebook twitter and instagram please download and subscribe 
to Metallicast on iTunes. Leave a five-star review if you'll be so kind to do so. The more reviews we get, the better it is for the show. You can also find the show, of course, on our home site, fansonexpress.com. Like I said, plus Google, Stitcher, YouTube, PlayAPod. If you can find a podcast on a service, you can find Metallicast on that service. I also want to shout out Met Fan Mike. I had a great conversation with him on Facebook earlier this week. He had listened to a few episodes of the podcast and said he really enjoyed it. And he is starting a YouTube show called Color Our World Blackened. Check it out on YouTube. Seems like a very cool concept. Basically, he is a Metallica collector and he's going to be trading uh, with other fans from all over the world. His goal is to trade with somebody from every country, I believe. Uh, so this is going to be a long-term plan, uh, but it sounds really cool. I'm eagerly looking forward to the first episode, which he was working on when I spoke to him. Uh, so please check out Matt Fan Mike on YouTube. Color Our World Blackened is the name of his YouTube series. Very, very cool. As always, I want to end with a Metallica cover now. This one is unique. It is Chris Cornell performing live. I want to pay tribute to the late, great Chris Cornell, who uh, the it was recently the first anniversary of his passing. Um, it was also recently announced that he is forever going to be commemorated in Seattle with a statue, which is awesome. Very, very cool. But this is him covering one, except this is the unique part of it. It's the music of the song One by You 2, sung with Metallica lyrics over it. Check it out. Until next time, ladies and gentlemen, met up your ass. Yeah! Jesus.
Fabs not experts. Yeah.